0: Hi, this is Sandy Simpson from Apologetics Coordination Team. Thank you for choosing one of our podcasts, and I hope that you enjoy it and it's a help to you. Today we're in First Corinthians thirteen, which has been called the love chapter, and it's one of the most beautiful chapters on love. The you know I can't imagine. That Paul wrote uh, under the uh, influence of the Holy Spirit. Well, let's start in verse one. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If you have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now I want to deal with the first part of this verse, which has been used by Pentecostals to try to prove that men men who speak in tongues can also speak in the tongues of angels. You know, angels, when they communicated with man, only spoke earthly languages that we know of when they were sent by the Lord with a message for men. We don't know if angels speak languages or communicate in some spiritual way that's different from men. Uh, And uh, one of the commentaries says this, and of angels, the language of angels, such as they speak, were I endowed with the faculty of eloquence and persuasion, which we attribute to them, and the power of speaking to any of the human family with the power which they have, you know, the language of angels here seems to be used to denote the highest power of using language or of the most elevated f- faculty of eloquence and speech. It's evidently derived from the idea that angels are superior in all respects to men, that they must have a, a endowments in advance of all which man can have. In uh, it may be possible, uh, may possible have reference to the idea that they must have some mode of communicating their ideas to one another, and that this dialect or mode must be superior to that which is employed by man. Man is imperfect, all his modes of communication are defective. We attribute to the angels the idea of perfection, and that's from Barnes and T. Notes. But, you know, Paul's not saying that men are given the ability to speak in angel languages. Because, frankly, from what he says following, that would be of no benefit. 1 Corinthians 14, 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? There's no benefit to speaking a language that has no earthly meaning. Tongues were spoken to communicate with men, and in particular, to communicate the wonder of the gospel. Let's look at that from Acts 2. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues and languages, as the Spirit enabled them. Acts 2, 7-12. Utterly amazed, they asked, are these all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then now is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, uh, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Capp- Cappadocia, um, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamph- uh, Pamphylia, uh, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Ju- Judaism, Cretans and, and Arabs, We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Well, Paul is using uh, a form called hyperbole in this uh, explanation. That means that he was exaggerating to make a point. The point is that even if men could speak the tongues of angels, but do not have love, their gift would be useless. He's not stating that men can speak the tongues of angels, only saying that the tongues of angels are considered even greater than the tongues of men. But even if a person could speak them and they did not have love, their words would be without coherency and meaning, such as the song, sound of a gong or a a cymbal, it's useless. Unfortunately, that's what we see today in a lot of these churches that think they're speaking all kinds of weird tongues. It ends up being it's babble. it's not real tongues at all. Paul teaches that spiritual gifts mean nothing without being applied and used in love. Tongues, prophecy, wisdom, faith, and charity without love gain nothing. So in it, by inference, all the gifts lack usefulness, in fact, are useless without love. The Corinthians were in a contest test of sorts to see who had the greater gifts, but were causing division over these things, proving they were not doing them in love. And this is exactly what we see in a lot of modern Pentecostal, charismatic, third-wave churches. But love is the better way, the higher way. It should be love first, and then the gifts will have meaning. Without love, I am nothing, quote-unquote, and, quote, I gain nothing, unquote. We're back to square one if we claim to have spiritual gifts, but we do not have love. We are nothing, and we don't advance. This is why Paul had to rebuke the Corinthians. But then he moves on to explain what love is in one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible about love. Starting in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. You know, this passage is so clear that there's really no need to have commentary on it. And I'm not really qualified to add anything important to this great statement on love, but I wanna to read to you something from one of the commentaries that I thought was, was helpful. It says, the action of love is described. First of all, love is patient and kind. It endures slights and wrongs patiently and long and returns a kindly spirit. It is slow to anger. Christ, when he was reviled, reviled not again. The fruit of the spirit is long-suffering. Also, love doesn't envy. How miserable, how miserable is that envy which is made unhappy by the good fortune of another? Have <laughs> You ever done that? <laughs> you envy somebody because they're having good fortune. Cain <laughs> is a perfect example of that. Uh, But love excludes excludes that kind of idea. A mother doesn't envy her child, for instance. It also does not boast, it's not proud. It doesn't ostentatiously boast of superiority, nor is it inflated. It's not rude or discourteous in a way to shock good manners or morals. It's not self-seeking. It's, a, is, it's unselfish and disinterested. It's not easily angered. It doesn't fly into a rage, but keeps temper under control. It keeps no record of wrongs. The idea is that love does not keep a record of evil rendered so as to return it. It's called keeping a grudge It does not delight in evil. Instead of rejoicing is filled with sadness by wrongdoing of any kind. But it does rejoice in the truth in its triumphs. It also protects. It bears up in spite of all things evil and is not overcome. Love bears up against the tide of evil as a rock against the waves. May we be that way today, folks. We live in what's called by the Bible, the evil day. Just look around. It always trusts, is not distrustful and suspicious. It always hopes, is hopeful instead of despondent and hopes for the best. How hard for the loving mother to give up hope for her backsliding son, for instance. It always preserves endures patiently persecution and suffering. The cardinal quality of fortitude, hardihood, unyielding persistence is meant. And this was from people's New Testament notes. Well, these are the characteristics of love. If a person says they love anyone as and is, let's look at the opposite, un- impatient, unkind, envious, boastful, proud, rude, self-seeking, easily angered, keeps a record of wrongs, is unforgiving, delights in evil, does not rejoice in the truth, does not protect, trust, and hope, or preserve, then you can tell that that person doesn't really have love. That's a good test to put the people who say they love But they're really self-seeking. They're too involved in themselves. The passage goes on in verse 8. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish things behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Whoa. What a thought, folks. You ever thought about that one? We will fully know God. Amazing. As mentioned before, these verses don't prove that there are no gifts today because the perfection mentioned is not the Bible, though it's perfect and inerrant in the original manuscripts, but it's clearly talking about when Jesus Christ returns as it speaks of when we will see him face to face. It's not talking about the Bible. It's talking about Jesus himself. Love does not fail. Prophecies, tongues, and knowledge will eventually fail. They will cease to exist. But love, love is forever. That's because we live in space and time and only know a limited number of things. It's similar to our growing up. When we were children, we spoke, but our words were not always in line with knowledge and rarely with wisdom. But when we became mature, we left those foolish ways behind. So it will be when we see the Lord. Whereas we saw things as though reflected in a mirror, upon being united with him in the rapture, resurrection, and millennial kingdom, we will see him face to face and we'll understand fully just as we are fully known by him now. Wow, what a promise, folks. We will know fully. We'll finally understand what God has done and is doing. That's going to be exciting, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I'm excited about that. Verse 13, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Why is the greatest of these three love? Where I propose it's because love endures forever, like I've said before. Jude 121, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. To bring you to eternal life. 2 Thessalonians 3.5. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. John 3.16 of course. For God so loved the world. That he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish. But have eternal life. The love of God has eter- endured For eternity past to future in fact god had love within himself the trinity that's where love comes from you have heard the phrase god is love that's why that's where we learn of love love will endure for eternity faith and hope have their important place now and so remain but in eternity they'll basically no longer be a need for faith and hope. That's because our faith is placed in God, and when we're finally with him in the new heaven and new earth, and in fact in the millennial kingdom, we will be with the object of our faith. Therefore, faith will no longer be needed. Also, our hope today is in Christ and his return. But when he returns, our hope will no longer be needed. This is a reminder that those who teach that faith is a force that God used to create the universe and could therefore be used by men to create reality. (laughs) What a big fat lie. Jesus Christ is the object of our faith and hope. He's who we put our faith and hope in. Faith is not a force, but it's our trust in him to do all that he's promised. But you know what, there is one of these three things that remains forever, and that's love, never goes away. God's love spans the ages and eternity and will never fail or cease to exist. One of the commentaries says this, the excellency of love above the power of speaking the languages of men and of angels above the power of understanding all mysteries Above all faith, even the highest kind, and above the virtue of giving all one's goods to feed the poor or one's body to be burned, all these endowments would be valueless without love. Another one says the conclusion, as if the apostle should say, such therefore will be our condition then, but now we have three things, and they remain sure if uh, we are Christ's without which true religion cannot consist, that is faith, hope, and charity. And among these, charity, or love, is the chiefest because it ceases not in the the life to come, as the rest do, but is perfected and accomplished. For seeing that faith and hope tend to things which are promised and are to come, when we have presently gotten them, to what purpose would we have faith and hope? But yet, there are at length, we will truly, perfectly love both God and one another. And that's from 1599 Geneva footnotes. And one more says this, to sum up the excellencies of charity, he prefers it not only to gifts, but to other graces, to faith and hope. And now abide faith, hope and charity, but the greatest of these is charity. True grace is much more excellent than any spiritual gifts, whatever. And faith, hope, and love are the three principal graces of which charity is the chief, being the end to which the other two are but means. This is the divine nature, the soul's felicity, or it is a, uh, uh, is complacmental to the rest in God, and holy delight in all the saints. And it is everlasting work when faith and hope shall be no more. Faith fixes on the divine revelation and a to that. Hope fastens on future felicity and waits for that. And in heaven, faith will, will be swallowed up in vision and hope in fruition. There is no room to believe in hope when we see and enjoy. But love fastens on the divine perfections themselves and divine image on the creatures and our mutual relation both to God and them. These will all shine forth in the most glorious splendors in another world. And there will be love, love. there will love be made perfect. There we shall perfectly love God because he will appear amiable forever and our hearts will kindle at the sight and glow with perpetual devotion. And there shall we perf- perfectly love one another when all the saints meet there, when none but saints are there and saints made perfect. O oh, blessed state! How much surprising the best below! O oh, amiable and excellent grace of charity! How much does it exceed the most valuable gift? when it outshines every grace and is the everlasting consummation of them. When faith and hope are at an end, true charity will burn forever with the brightest flame. Note, those border most upon the heavenly state and perfection whose hearts are fullest of this divine principle and burn with the most fervent charity, it is the surest offspring of God and bears his fairest impression for God is love. And where God is to be seen as he is and face to face, their charity is in its greatest height. There, there only will it be perfected. And that is from Matthew Henry commentary. So well said, I'd say, this is what we look forward to. This is the perfect, when when the perfect comes. I hate it when these guys use this thing to try to say that that there are no gifts today. Because the Bible already came. It's not talking about the Bible. talking about Jesus and the resurrection. They need to reread their Bibles. They often take these kinds of things out of context and make a whole new doctrine out of them. Which has nothing to do with the Bible. So. You know, um, I'm sure like you, we are all waiting for that day. We live in an evil day. I started thinking about yesterday. Remember how I talked about the world before the flood? It was entirely evil. People's thoughts were always evil all the time. There was violence and evil going on. I look and see what's going on. I was talking about the new uh, NRSV <laughs> that tries to general, gender neutralize everything. What do they do with the fact that God, who created man in his own image, man, he created Adam from the dust of the earth. He created woman from Adam but he created Adam after himself. But we're not supposed to have God referring to himself as a he, (laughs) which makes it rather difficult to try to find something to, to say, you know. These guys have kowtowed to this screwed up culture so much now that every single program that comes out is disgusting. It's just, it's just full of this perversion, and it's hard for us because we want to live a life dedicated to righteousness, to the Lord, and yet we are beset with this stuff every single day. You know what? I can, I can basically sympathize with where Lot was coming from. It says in the Bible that Lot was a righteous man. I can guarantee you, he was troubled with what was going around him in Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, that's the same way we are today. We are troubled by it. We try to help people, but they won't listen. They're not interested. They want to be completely you know, involved in their sins. They love their sins so much. Well, you know what, we love the Lord. And we're waiting for him to come back. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, We need to continue to pray that prayer. And we thank the Lord that he is coming back and soon. Hi, this is Sandy Simpson again. Thank you for listening to one of our podcasts. You can come to my website, apologetic coordination team at deceptionandchurch.com, or go to our YouTube site called Act TV and check out our DVDs and books, etc. Thank you so much for checking us out.